Hello and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from academic discussions happening in our journal to interviews with filmmakers and artists and global perspectives on health and medicine from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and to the humanities because life happens at the intersections. Good morning and welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. This is Brandy Skilache, Editor-in-Chief. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Alice Wong, who is a disability activist, media maker and consultant, and also the founder and director of Disability Visibility Project, which is a community partnership with StoryCorps. We're really excited to have Alice today because in the light of the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak, I think disability visibility becomes even more important. Alice, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Brandy. I'm really excited to hear from you. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about Disability Visibility Project, just to get started. Sure thing. I started out initially as an oral history project with StoryCorps, which is a national oral history nonprofit. But now it's an online community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media culture. So, you know, I have a blog, I publish essays, I have a podcast, I dabble in a lot of things. And what's sort of your main goal through the Disability Visibility Project? Because I know um, there's a lot of different wheels turning for you. What, what is it that you hope to achieve most? Well, I think the big goal is to to provide a space, a space for us to tell our stories, a space for us to find each other, Mm -hmm. and a space for us to really mobilize. So there's a lot of activism, there's a lot of storytelling, you know, it's all interconnected. And I think uh, one of the latest things I'm doing that I'm really excited about is that I'm the editor of a new anthology that's coming out this summer called Disability, visibility, first person stories from the 21st century. And it's available now. And it's really been a labor of love. There's going to be 37 stories by disabled people from the 21st century that I'm just super, super proud and excited about. That's wonderful. You know, one of the things that uh, came across to us last year during our push for global health. Uh, humanities at MH was how often we end up hearing about people, but not hearing from them. So I think this is really important because having discussions with and hearing from people in the community, as opposed to a kind of top-down anthropological, you know, telling about them is, is critical for really understanding what the situation is like. Absolutely. I feel like this is a, a broader discussion about kind of who gets to be in this field? I mean, you know, we think about academia, we think about the humanities and how difficult it is for so many people to make it through higher education and mm-hmm. you know, professional education too. So I think there's a lot of kind of room and, you know, a lot of um, space that's necessary in order for a more diverse folks to be part of these conversations and 
definitely to be, you know, these decision makers. Yes, absolutely. Plus, I think one of one of the interesting points that you just brought up is about how the, the difficulties of access. Our our focus this year at Medical Humanities has to do with access broadly considered. And I recall when I was a professor uh, years ago, having a student who had asked if they could take online classes because of, I believe at the time, I can't remember what the uh, the issue was, but they couldn't come to the classes. And at the time, the university said, we're unable to do that. We, we simply couldn't do that. Now, in light of coronavirus, we see actually it is possible. All the universities have had to go to online learning and distance learning. And I know that there's a lot of difficulties and problems with that. But could you tell us a little bit about what that's like to, on one hand, be demanding access, and on the other hand, seeing access come only when we're in these crisis times? Yeah, it was really uh, very bitter to me and ironic because I think for so many people like myself, we've been asking nicely, we've been demanding, we've been asserting our you know, rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and yet for so many of us, having these very simple, you know, different ways to participate, whether it's an online class, whether it's a Zoom conference, whether it's, you know, doing something by email versus, you know, uh, you know by phone. You know, these are things that disabled people have been fighting for, for years, if not decades, and very often is uh, the response has been, it's a burden, right? Or it's a hardship, or we just, mm. you know, we just can't, it, 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 ruins, it ruins the integrity of what we're trying to do. Oh, uh, yeah, I've heard that. And, and, yes, of course, and, uh, and as we see now, was, you know, was middle class, not disabled people, have their lives interrupted and you know once they have you know something that they take for granted that's taken away from them suddenly you know things materialize and you know suddenly everybody's like discovering the wonders of zoom and it's really <laughs> it's really odd and i think uh, without going too salty i'll just say that. I really do hope that after this pandemic that the upside will be that all these institutions and organizations maintain these options and, and rely on them, you know, because I think access adds value for everybody. And, you know, if we could just maintain this rather than returning back to normal, because... Mm-hmm. You know, I see people wishing that normal will return, and I really hope that the listeners realize that normal wasn't great for a lot of people. Exactly. So, you know, post-pandemic, hopefully, because there will be other pandemics, there will be other major crises, I think, you know, by little, you know, the little hopeful, you know, note is that people are more mindful that they uh, they start kind of building building an access with everything they do and mm-hmm. you know that's my hope mm-hmm. and I think too um, I think in terms of access also uh, job interviews 
and conferences. You know, you said academe is a very difficult. I, I am no, I'm sort of uh, academic adjacent, I suppose. I'm not actually in academe myself, but um, to be able to go to conferences is very expensive, mm-hmm. and it's not just. Um, I mean, there's these issues of, of access that are monetary, that are physical, that mm-hmm. are even even trying to go to job interviews and things like that. Um, and I'm just seeing, you know. It could, it could lead to a leveling of the playing field. But what often happens is the minute technology becomes available that could level the playing field, it ultimately is uh, reused in favor already of the majority. And so um, I've seen a lot of talk online about how in the midst of this crisis, when disabled lives ought to be even more visible, in fact, they're being threatened and sidelined, and this goes all the way to the issues with ventilators and other things. And so um, I have the hope, too, that things will get better on the other side of this. But there's always this fear that if we if we slow down at all in what we ask for, it will still be used against us instead of for us. Oh, sure. I think this is where, like, you know, co-optation is very real. And, you know, I think we can see this right now with the medications that the president is promoting, like hydroxychloroquine, because there are people with chronic illnesses who actually need it now, and they're facing shortages. They're not going to have, you know, because all these really ridiculous folks are holding it and, you know, prescribing it, but it's not even a proven treatment. Right. So that's an example of something that's already there for people who need it. A bunch of like, for example, you know, alcohol swabs or hand sanitizer. And all these fools are just like, you know, hoarding and buying up stuff. Mm -hmm. It really takes away the very real days of disabled and sick people. And that's before we get to the concept of, of shortages of ventilators. Yeah, and there's all kinds of shortages, but I think if we even think about the most basic thing about food, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that for myself, you know, I cannot go out and buy groceries. Uh, I live with my parents, who are both older as well. So we're a high risk family. And, you know, these online grocery services are completely overrun and uh, I've had delays on my orders like like two or three weeks. Like it's just very you know, there's no kind of like way to prioritize. So it's very mm-hmm. it's very frustrating because there are other people who clearly do have options and yet they're clogging up like lifelines mm-hmm. that a lot of us have like no other choice to use. Right, exactly. And and it comes down again to, uh, you said earlier that when the people with disabilities have reached out before to ask for accommodations, they're told that uh, it's inconvenient. Um, and I think in some ways, some of the, for instance, online ordering of groceries, um, people are doing that for convenience, not necessarily because they have to. And so you you have yet another situation where um, convenience and inconvenience are very uh, interesting words to to parse in the middle of a crisis like this. Yeah, I think one person's inconvenience 
draw one person to videos is one person's like life or death option. I feel like this mm -hmm. is another thing that's, you know, such a message of privilege. I mean, uh, if we even think about the way testing is organized, it's very much about car culture. Did you think mm -hmm. about all the people that take buses or people who don't have access to transportation? Like, how do they get tested? And I think these are all these different kind of questions about how things are designed and who they're really centering. And very often they're not centered on the most marginalized. No, no. And, and I think that's uh, one of the reasons that we didn't uh, we, we chose the word access to focus on rather than talking about it in a, a smaller way, because access can mean many different things, is the moment we tried to limit it, we realized access is a part of everything. Access is a problem everywhere you look, whether it's health access, food access, um, access to spaces, access to care, access to shelter. You know, this this is such a big issue. And I think we have many able-bodied people have the privilege of ignoring act, not thinking about access, not thinking about immobility, not thinking about these things. Um, and they resent being forced to think about it suddenly in their own lives. And they just want it to be over when in fact, it's a real opportunity, I think, for us to, to make disability visible. I really hope so. And I think that this is, uh, you know, it's not meant to make people feel guilty or defensive, but it's just an acknowledgement that there are different ways of living and existing. And we can all we all have a role in expanding access. You know, we all have a role as allies and as uh, disabled people to create access for one another. And I feel like if there's if there's one message I can share, it's that that you know we all have this capacity to create access and that we have power to do that. Yes, absolutely. That's wonderful. Are there any resources or directions you would like to guide our listeners to while we're on any uh, websites or book projects or other things that you might want people to check out? Well, uh, folks can find out my work at disabilityvisibilityproject.com. And I'm also part of another project called Access is Love. And this is a campaign by Mia Binkus and Sandy Hodai. And this is a website with uh, different resources on, you know, making your events accessible, on how to do your social media in accessible ways. But it's really uh, promoting the idea that access is a lot more than just an afterthought. It's a lot more than just a compliance to a law. It's actually a form of love but you actually mm. care about the people around you and about your community, you will fight for access. That's beautiful. I love that. We're going to go ahead and put these uh, many of these links on the blog post that will accompany our post today. And we will also be putting up a, um, a transcript of today's talk. And I really am excited to have you on. I hope that we can have you on again. Um, any last words for those facing crisis um, because of the coronavirus? Any words of comfort for those with disabilities or words for their allies? Well, I think it's definitely a scary time. And I think uh, as we've seen, uh, 
you know, sometimes there's that phrase we're all in this together. I think it's, well, I do agree the overall idea of it. I think we absolutely have to acknowledge that certain communities are, are hit by this in far greater numbers. And I think this is, again, uh, an opportunity to really do some serious reflection and uh, about the systemic inequality and systemic racism and ableism in our in our culture, not just not just in the medical system, but everywhere. And I think you know this is a really uh, you know difficult questions, but I think these are things we have to talk about. Thank you. Thank you so much for your work with Disability Visibility Project. Again, this is Alice Wong, who is a disability activist, media maker, and consultant. And we're so happy to have had you on today. Listeners, please do join us on the blog and in the journal. And again, thank you for listening and being part of our conversation. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Stay in touch by reading the journal or our blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We're also on Twitter at medhams underscore BMJ or find us on Facebook. Facebook.